Amen. So I uh, have the two cutest boys on the planet. I'll give you proof so that you can't argue with me anymore. There it is. There's proof. Abel is now four. He'll tell you he's four going on 12. Um, And Cohen is going to be two next month. And he's a little rotten. I'm not sure where he gets that from. His mom. And... um, but what's interesting about both of these boys is that when I look at them, I only see Abel and I only see Cohen. But when other people look at them, inevitably, they'll say, oh, I see a lot of his mom. I see a lot of his dad. I see a lot of his grandma. His gran- well, they're Nana, Papa, Mama, and Papa at our house. But like, I, see a lot of, I see a lot of grandparents. And, and it's so funny to me because people, within 24 hours, people have walked up to us and they'll say, he looks just like his dad. And then not minutes later, somebody else will say, he looks just like you, mom, which makes me a little nervous. Um, I don't think Whitney and I are related in any way, but we might have to do so. But it's so funny because people are, are dead set and they're certain he looks just like you. He looks just like you. But what's funnier to me than, than looking like them, because I, I hope they grow up looking like their mom because dad has a face for radio. I, I, I hope that though, I hope that for them, that they grow up differently than, than their dad does. And I, I, I mean, I, I don't mean to say that I don't think things went well for me. I don't think that things are, are good for me. But, but I think all the time about not who they look like, but who they're growing up to be. And who they're growing up to, to become. And one of the questions that I have to ask myself on a pretty regular basis is, Am I, right now, who I want my boys to grow up into? Am am I being who I want my boys to be? And it's a difficult question. It's one I ask myself all the time, because not only do they look like me, they act like me. And, And they're both silly, and they both love telling jokes and making people laugh and goofing off. And it's never more evident than when we're doing projects around the house. Um, We have an older house, so it's broken like every day. Also, I fix things around our house, so it's still broken like every day. And what's funny is, what's really funny about this is that this is a habit I learned from my dad. But like when I'm working on a project, if something doesn't work or if a screw falls off the screwdriver or, you know, something slips or anything like that, Inevitably, when I'm exasperated with a project, I'll say, and I promise this is exactly how I say it. Don't think I'm censoring it for you because I wouldn't lie to you. This is what I do is I say, shoot. And I say it just like that. And I never thought about saying shoot until I said shoot. And Cohen walked around for the next three hours going, shoot, shoot, shoot. And I was like, guess I can't say that word anymore. And it's so funny because I never, I never thought to say, Cohen, when, when you're mad, you say, shoot. You know, like when something drops, when something breaks, this is what you do. But he, he does it. And it's such an important reminder to me to ask myself, am I who I want the boys to be? Am I, at age 31, what I hope my kids are at age 31? And, it, and it's an important reminder to myself that, that my kids are becoming me and their mom. 
And sometimes what happens is that they become the worst version of us. Sometimes what happens is they become a better version of us. But I I can almost guarantee you that if we were to go through the room and talk about you and, and your kids, that I could draw out in most of you examples of who your kids are in you. And that's kind of a, a frightening thought. And there's, a, there's an interesting debate, I, I've followed along with it for years, that they call it nature versus nurture, trying to decide if, if kids grow up and what forms them more is, is the DNA inside of them, or what forms them more are the outside forces that are helping to raise them. And, and it's really interesting, but, but I, I, I tend to fall back a little bit on, on the nature part um, there's separated identical twin studies where twins, even down to the fact that um, one, one's, one pair of twins that I found had been separated at birth, but they still smoked the same brand of cigarettes. They grew up miles apart. They never knew each other, but when they were 39, they finally met, and they were still smoking the same brand of cigarettes, down to the T of who they were. And this is the thing about, about your kids growing up, is that a lot of what's inside of your kids is inside of your kids. What matters more is not just saying that's who they are. What matters more is shaping them and saying, I am at 31 who I want you to be at 31. I am at 55 what I want you to be at 55 or better. And it gets tough and it gets difficult. And if you're, if you're a church person, you know this word. If you're new, this might be a new word. But one of the most important parts of following Jesus is this thing we call discipleship. And the point of discipleship is, is to, to show someone how to be like Jesus. And whether it's their first day following Jesus or their 99th day following Jesus or their 99th year following Jesus, everyone needs to be discipled and everyone needs to be shown how to follow Jesus by somebody else. And it's such an important aspect of following Jesus to have role models and mentors and people who can lead you in what it means to follow Jesus. But what happens a lot of times is that we think of discipleship as what happens right here. We think of discipleship as what happens, you know, in Bible study. We think of discipleship as what happens in listening to sermons. But the reality of discipleship is that discipleship is far more caught than taught. Because I can tell you until I'm blue in the face. I can tell my boys until I'm blue in the face. I can tell other people until I, until I can't tell them anymore. But what really matters is what you catch. Because what you catch is who you become. This is bad news for the parents who love the phrase, do as I say, not as I do. I want to tell you that there's a word for you and it's hypocrite. And your kids won't do as you say. They'll see what you do, and eventually they'll catch it. And so I have to ask you the question, what are your kids catching? My pastor growing up um, used to say this every time we had a baby dedication, and it stuck with me forever. He would say at the end of the baby dedication, he'd say, may your child give you the greatest compliment one could ever receive. He said, may someday they stand on this stage again and say, I believe Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior, and I want to follow him because I've seen him in the life of my parents. And that's just always stuck with me now as a parent to think, are my boys seeing Jesus in me? 
are my boys seeing who Jesus is in me? Not just in what I say, not just in the Bible stories we read at bedtime, but are they seeing him in me? We've talked, a couple weeks ago, we talked about how, how pressure-packed parenting is in 2018. You know, a hundred years ago, the only thing you had to do to be a successful parent was, like, let your kids survive and not get arrested. But now in 2018, your kid has to be at the top of the class, your kid has to be the best and the brightest and the greatest, or you're a failure as a parent is what the internet will tell you. And what happens then is, is that there's so much pressure and there's so much, so much information that you get weighed down and you're not sure what to do. And, and I have this struggle where I want to talk to people about being parents, but I don't want to add to the pressure and to the noise. And so one of the things that I remind people of a lot is that one of the hardest things to do is preach about parenting. And it's hard, A, because my kids are only four and two, and so I don't have a lifetime of experience to give to you. It's hard because some of you are parents of kids who you did everything right and your kids still walked away. And it's hard, too, because if you look through the Bible, there are no good examples of parents. It's not as if you can look through the Bible and, and see people who walked on earth and say, this is the kind of dad you should be. See how they discipline their kid properly. See how they taught their kid well. See how, but that's what, makes the, that's what makes preaching about parenting so hard but so easy. It's to be reminded that there are no good examples of parents in the Bible, but there are people who royally screwed up as parents and God still used. There are people who were raised by some jacked up parents who God still used. And so that's the beauty of the story of Scripture is that, is that over and over again, God used people who no one would have expected, who no one would have suspected, and God used those people. One of those people is a guy named Abraham. The story of Abraham takes place in the book of Genesis. We're going to end up in Genesis chapter 26 if you want to turn in your Bible there or turn on your phone there. Um, but what happens to the story of Abraham is Abraham is one of those guys, you know, you know Father Abraham had many sons. Maybe you know that song, maybe you don't. Um, we're not singing it today, so it's stuck in your head, though. But the thing about Abraham is he gets held up as this shining example and this great guy. But the reality of Abraham is he probably wasn't a very good dad. And Abraham has this problem and has this struggle. You see, Abraham doesn't become a father until he's 100 years old, and his wife Sarah is 90. And they have a son named Isaac. But here's what's interesting about Abraham, is Abraham is God's man. Abraham has been given this promise by God, but Abraham can't seem to handle it. You see, Abraham doesn't trust God, and so he impregnates another woman because he hasn't had a child yet, and that woman and her son run away. Abraham has this other problem, though, that, that really is a huge problem for him, and Abraham can't quite tell the truth. You see, in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham and his wife Sarah are going to a place called Egypt. And when they get to Egypt, he looks at Sarah and he says, listen, you're real pretty, and don't try this as a pickup line. Um, he says, you're so pretty, they might kill me to have you because they know we're married. And he says, so instead of telling them you're my wife, I'm going to tell them you're my sister. And so Sarah's like, all right, that's weird, whatever. And so what happens is they get, to, they get to Egypt and the leaders see Sarah and they want to have her. And Abraham says, that's fine, she's just my sister. 
And so she goes, and she's forced to sleep with the leadership in Egypt, and there's this big story, and all, all of the leadership of Egypt ends up, the Bible tells us, ill. And it's because God's cursing them for sleeping with Abraham's wife, and they go to Abraham, and they're like, why did you tell us she was your sister? And he's like, I just didn't want to die. So then a couple of chapters later, in chapter 20, Abraham and, and Sarah end up in a place called Gerar, and it's there in Gerar that they meet a guy named Abimelech. And again, Abraham gives her the secret signal. Huh, sis? And so Abimelech thinks, well, this beautiful woman isn't married. I'm going to marry her myself. And Abimelech takes her and he goes to marry her, but God speaks to him in a dream and says, you can't marry that woman. She's married. And Abimelech comes to Abraham and he's like, you realize that if I had married her, God would have struck me dead, right? And Abraham's like, I wouldn't have died. And so this is just a microcosm of the life of Abraham, but all of this happens before Abraham's 100th birthday. On his, around the time he's 100, he has a son. And his son Isaac grows up, and there's a cool story in the midst of this of, of Abraham being willing to sacrifice his son to God after God asks him to, but God's just testing him, and it sounds really crazy, but I promise it's not all that crazy. And, and, and there's this cool story of Abraham's faith, and Abraham's this example, but something interesting happens in chapter 26. You see, Abraham's gone, and Isaac has moved on, and he's married, and Isaac and his wife are traveling to a, town, a country called Gerar. And they get to Gerar, and Isaac gets a little nervous. They're in a foreign country. They're in a territory they haven't been in before. They don't necessarily know anybody. Isaac starts to think a little bit. And he, as they're walking up, Isaac says this in verse 7. This is, when the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she's my sister. Because he was afraid to say, she is my wife. And he thought, the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebecca because she is beautiful. And so then comes this moment where maybe 30, 40, 50 years after Abimelech is lied to by Abraham, Abimelech hears from Isaac. And Isaac says, she's my sister. And this happened, I, I firmly believe that Abraham does this to, to Abimelech before Isaac's even born. But what matters isn't that it was before Isaac was born. What matters is that it wasn't the only time, I, I would argue, that Abraham lied to save himself. There were probably times where it was little white lies. There were probably times where it got a little bigger. There were probably times where it turned into an ordeal. But I imagine that Isaac saw Abraham more than once stretch the truth. That he saw Abraham more than once just tell a little white lie to get out of something. And so one of the most important things that we see Isaac catches from Abraham is integrity doesn't matter if you need to protect yourself. Your wife's life isn't as valuable as yours. Protecting your family isn't as important as protecting yourself. And so then in verse 8, we see that it says, Isaac had been there a long time, and Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, looked down from a window and saw Isaac caressing his wife, Rebecca, and he goes, ew, gross, what, she was your sister. But Abimelech summoned Isaac and said, she really is 
your wife. Why did you say she is my sister? And Isaac answered him, because I thought I might lose my life on account of her. And then Abimelech said, what is this you've done to us? One of the men might well have slept with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. And Abimelech's angry, and he sends him out. And there comes this moment when, when you see it. You see it in Genesis 12, you see it in Genesis 20, and you see it in Genesis 26. And you, you would be a fool to think that Abraham ever sat down and said, now son, there's going to come a day when you need to tell somebody your wife is your sister. Right? I mean, that wouldn't have happened. There's no, there's no moment when Abraham is going to brag to his son about the times that he had to protect himself by calling his wife his sister. It's not one of those things that Abraham ever wanted for Isaac, but it happens because Isaac caught it from his dad. Isaac saw his dad snake his way out of situations. Isaac saw his dad overcome situations by not always telling the truth. And Isaac became who his dad was. And so I have to ask, are you who you want your kids to become? Is your integrity, is your faithfulness, are your words the things you want to see in your children? And that's a frightening question. It doesn't matter what age you are. It doesn't matter what age your kids are. If they're around you any bit, are you what you want your kids to become? I, I really believe that this holds true in any, any aspect of life, in any part of raising children. But, but for me, I, I want to apply it solely to following Jesus. I think this could count for your kid's fandom to, to whatever school you believe is the greatest school and college basketball team of all time. That, for me, is example number one of your kids becoming who you are because they see that in you. And it can, you can apply it to, to what your kids love, to what your kids become, to what your kids study because it starts with who you are. But for us, I want to apply it to following Jesus. You plug and play whatever's most important to you. But here's the thing. Your priority will become your kids' priorities. And what you treat as secondary will become the things your kids disregard. Your priority will become your kids' priorities. And what you treat as secondary will become the thing your kids disregard. So what is your priority? My friend Matt Summers just so happened to post this on Facebook this week. He's a pastor of a church out in Illinois, but I, I love this because it perfectly applies to what we're talking about today. Matt says, if parents reduce their commitment and connection to their local church when their children graduate high school, they should not be shocked or surprised when their graduates do the same. If parents reduce their commitment to Jesus once the kids are out of the house, don't be surprised if your kids knew all along it wasn't really that important to you. Because what your priority is becomes a priority for them, and what you viewed as secondary eventually just becomes ignored 
by them. And so what is it that your kids are becoming? Who is it that your kids are becoming? What are the things they do that you've never taught them, but they mirror? Here's one of the most important questions to ask, and this is one that frightens me. How do your kids talk to your spouse? Does it mirror the way you talk to your spouse? Let me put it to you this way. If your kids said the things to your spouse that you say, how would you feel? Because they hear it, and they see it, and they feel it. If your kids said the things to your spouse that you say, if your kids said the things about others that you say, if your kids do the things you do, how do you feel? And I, I want to I make sure that this is clear. One of the things that happens when we talk about discipling our kids or discipling anybody is people will say, I don't, I don't know enough. I can't disciple anybody because I don't know the Bible well enough. I, I can't disciple anybody because I haven't studied enough. And to that I say, probably not. But I also say, probably so. And so what I tell you is that if you don't think you know enough about the Bible, we offer opportunities here for you to be involved in men's Bible study, ladies' Bible study. If you just ask me, I will give you endless resources on, on what to study and where to read. But I also say this. What you need to know is to love your neighbor as you love yourself and love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what you need to know is that Jesus loved and sacrificed for other people. You see, I don't, I don't need you to disciple your kids by explaining the difference between the Olivet Discourse and the Upper Room Discourse. I, I don't need you to disciple your kids by walking them through the, the, the cleansing rituals of Leviticus. I don't need you to disciple your kids by, by trying to get them to understand the, the breadth and depth of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. What you need to do to disciple your kids is to put your cell phone down and have a conversation with them about their day. What you need to do is find moments in your life and in your day, not just to say, do, don't do that because I said so, but to say, don't do that because this is not how Jesus would treat another person. Don't do that because Jesus wants us to treat other people with love and kindness. You don't need to have a biblical studies degree to have a family dinner and talk about your day. You don't need a biblical studies degree to spend time discussing as a family how we can help the neighbor down the street. Those are things that we can do right now. You see, I think it's important for us to catch as a group that it's not just about biblical knowledge. Biblical knowledge is important, but more important is what your kids are catching. I want to tell you this too, and this is, this is vital. I want to tell you that you are not alone. 
that I, I don't think, I don't think, I don't think the Bible thinks, I don't think that any other person thinks that it's your alone responsibility to disciple your child. That's what we are here for. That's why we offer kids land to teach your kids about following Jesus. That's why we have fantastic volunteers who sacrifice energy and time and effort to come in and teach your kids about following Jesus. But I also want to tell you that on average, we see your kids something like 30 hours a year when you see your child about 3,000. But I want to tell you that we're here to offer opportunities to disciple your kids. And I want to introduce my friend Keith today because Keith is here to tell you about another incredible opportunity to disciple your kids. I am who I am today because of church camp. I went to, grew up going to a different camp than Butler Springs, but Keith represents Butler Springs Christian Camp, which is where we send kids, and Keith is here to talk to you today about how your kids can know names like Brian Schreiber, and your kids can know names like uh, Anthony Rowe. Those names mean nothing to Keith, but those are camp counselors from when I was a kid. And so Keith's going to take just a minute to tell you about Butler Springs and about how Butler Springs can partner with you to disciple your kids. In the 2006 Olympics, there was a baton race. The men's team from the United States was supposed to be the gold. And as you watched, if you watched the race, you saw them make a fatal mistake. They failed to pass the baton. We've been called to pass the baton. Proverbs 22.6 says, train up a child in the way that they should go, and when they're old, they'll not depart from it. Joshua told the men of Israel, that you need to tell your children, train your children. And it isn't too long as you read a few more verses that it says, the fathers forgot to tell the children. We have a great responsibility to train up our children. We do that through church. We do it through all kinds of opportunities. There was a study done several years ago from, by Christianity Today on how much time the average father spent with their children in meaningful communication. Often when I've asked the question, many people have said, oh, hours. We spend hours every day in teaching our children, training our children. The study showed that there was less than two minutes. The average father spends less than two minutes in meaningful communication with their children every day. And yet, Hollywood spends 34 hours a week in training your children because that's how much the average child watches television. We have to do everything we can. We need to get them to Sunday school. We need to get them to every youth event. We need to do everything we can to help train up our children. And so we offer opportunities. We want to come alongside of you. We want to help you raise your children to be the kind of children that you would be proud of. We offer 51 summer camp opportunities in the nine weeks of summer for your children. We offer opportunities that, I mean, they're so endless. All you need to do is ask yourself, what does my child like to do besides sit at home and play on the computer? We'll have a week of camp for them or a camp opportunity. I hope that you'll stop by and take a look. You'll pick up a brochure. And maybe your children are already raised. Maybe it's time for you to help them raise their children, get your, ch your grandchildren involved. We have opportunities for the family. We do a mother-daughter safari, father-son safari, father-son wilderness quest, my, my parent and me weekend, family fun weekend, parent-teen extreme. 
We have all kinds of opportunities for you as a family to go together and to try to train up your child. We want to help you do that. We ask that you would trust us. We've been around for, uh, since uh, 1949. I've been there for 29 years, and we have great opportunities. We have great facilities. We are safe. And we'd like for you to see some of the great things that they have the opportunity to participate in as you watch this video. Schreiber, names like Anthony Rowe, names like Liam Loveless and Jay Hess. They're, they're names of people who shaped me along with my parents. Not to mention names like uh, Lynn Gall and Elsie Oser. Not to mention names like uh, 
Shane Armstrong, Michael Toll. These are people who, who, who helped to teach and who helped to shape me. By but if you were to ask me why I follow Jesus, if you were to ask me why, why I love Jesus, I would tell you it's because of Catherine and Chap Russell, and it's because of Chuck and Paula Stroop. And it's because I saw in them an example of who Jesus wanted me to be and who I needed to become. There's a guy named Paul who writes most of the New Testament, and Paul writes two letters to a boy named Timothy. We don't think he's probably much older than 16 when Paul's writing in these letters, but he's encouraging Timothy to, to go and to be a pastor and to start churches and do all of these incredible things that Timothy's about to do. But in 2 Timothy chapter 1, he says this, and I, I love this verse. He says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, Timothy, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded lives in you also. And the thought of, of someday someone saying to Abel, I'm, I'm persuaded of the faith which first lived in your mother and father, and lived in, in, your, in your nana and pop-pop, I pray that it's the faith that lives in you also. And, and I hope and I pray that you can say the same, that the faith that lived in your mother, or the faith that just started with your generation, is the faith that lives in your children also. And listen, I don't, I don't expect you to be an expert I don't think that God's disappointed that you don't know enough yet, but I know this. I know that there's still time. And I know that for your kids, there's still time. You see, the story of Isaac doesn't end with Isaac getting called out by Abimelech. You see, Isaac screwed up. He screwed up because his dad screwed up, because he was made this way, whatever you want to say. But what happens next is so interesting. The very next verse after Abimelech calls him out, it says this. It says, Isaac planted crops in that land in the same year reaped a hundredfold because the Lord blessed him. And you're like, wait, he just got busted for lying in a major way. And God still blessed him. You see, the, the thing that we need to be reminded of more than anything, and the thing that we need to be reminding our children of more than anything, is that we as people make mistakes. And that we as people will continue to make mistakes. And as parents, we've dropped the ball. But there is a God on high who is willing to and wants to forgive us. And who wants to make the past right. And who did so by his son, Jesus. The same Jesus we're trying to follow. The same Jesus we're trying to model our life after. The one who came to this world as, as a man. And who made no mistakes. Who did everything right. But instead of, of just receiving his reward... He took our punishment. And so we're reminded of our punishment through the body that's represented by the blood that was broken, or body that's represented by the bread that was broken for us, and through the cup that represents his blood poured out for us. 
so I tell you this to tell you that even if you're not sure you've cut it as a parent quite yet, even if you're not sure you're living the example you want your kids to follow, that there is a Jesus who says there is still time, there is still forgiveness. Remember that as we take the bread and the cup together.